podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the pod. As regular listeners know, Ian, my co-host, aka the boss man, and I have been in business since I think it's 2007. I got to check the documentation, but that's a long time. I think back then we really needed each other and it might even be more true today. I can't imagine doing so many of the things we've done without each other. I really think it would have been more difficult and certainly more lonely, But some people choose for their own reasons to go it alone and be solopreneurs. And on today's show, I'm speaking with someone who's done that and who I'm delighted to connect with again. I actually met him at our very first DCBKK event back in 2012. And just as an aside, it looks like we'll have a few hundred listeners of this show in Mexico in October. So excited for that. So today's guest's name is Darren Joe, and he's the director of the Touch MBA which matches MBA candidates with the most suitable business programs for them. And we'll get into the journey of how that business got started and how it turned into like the four-hour workweek promise business. But that nowhere near describes the totality of Darren. He's an alum of Princeton. He's a former Singapore Business School admissions director. He's a stunning athlete. I can personally attest to that. And he's a badass salsa dancer. And also, and importantly, he's just published a new book called The Failsafe Solopreneur, in which he offers some thoughts and also practical exercises about understanding and getting the most out of that particular journey, and particularly the mindset challenges like the loneliness, the stress that solopreneurs can face. So we're going to cover some of that. Also, stick around to the end for insights into why Darren has chosen to make his home in one of my favorite all-time cities, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. So I started out by asking Darren why after leaving Princeton, he headed out to not like the East Coast of America for a big fancy job or even Europe, but of all places to Asia. I didn't want to work for these like consulting companies or investment banks. I wanted to return back to Asia because I had studied abroad in Hong Kong as a junior. And so I went to this program called Princeton in Asia, which basically puts people in teaching and service positions all throughout Asia for like a one or two year stint. And I was teaching statistics in Singapore. And my plan was to just be in Southeast Asia, you know, as a young graduate, not have any savings, travel all around the region and just see everything that I could. The problem is I fell in love with the region as well. And Honestly, I haven't really looked back since. I I worked one year in New York City, but otherwise my entire career has been in Asia. And when you mention, you know, consulting investment banks, like it's a pretty clear funnel from Princeton and other elite universities directly into like these really well-paying jobs in New York City, basically. Yeah. Or in the major cities around the world. And the recruiting, honestly, like... If that's what you love to do, fantastic, right? But why did I feel, you know, as a senior in college, you know, going to one of the top universities in the U.S., that there are basically only four career options, grad school, consulting, banking, 
And then my crazy path, you know, going to Asia for a year to teach. I mean, it's so ridiculous when there's such a variety of amazing people to work for and great companies. You know, now tech is probably one of those four options, right? Working for a big tech company. But it's just ridiculous when I think back to it. What was it about Southeast Asia in particular that captured your imagination? I think it was it feeling somewhat familiar as I'm, I'm an Asian American and I was somewhat familiar with the Asian culture, but also being so foreign and so diverse. You know, the fact that you can jump on a plane and in one hour be in a completely different environment, you know, go from Singapore to Indonesia, to Vietnam, to Cambodia. I mean, that variety of people and a distinct environment and food and culture was so fascinating to me. I mean, it was so such a thrill. Like, I'm so excited just still talking about it. So then how did you end up with a stiff starch shirt and a pocket protector as an admissions director in (laughs) Singapore, of all places? Well, I needed to make money. That's the answer. And luckily, my boss, um, I, I knew from a previous friendship, and she thought I'd be a great fit. And so I joined. I tried, Dan. I tried really hard to stick on the corporate path okay, I'm going to work two, three years at this company, even though I'm not really enjoying it, but I have to put in my three years because otherwise my resume will look bad, right? I can't just like jump jobs every year. I mean, that looks horrible. You know, in the end, I had to jump and and try to do my own thing. What did it look like? At first, it was a thrill. I was so excited to just control my day and, you know, find podcasts like yours, read books, read blogs, like, brainstorm business ideas on napkins and look kind of like an independent rebel to my friends, right? Who still have these cushy (laughs) corporate jobs. That lasted for about six months. (laughs) And then I started realizing, man, this is a whole different world. Like, you know, putting a buy button up and getting someone who doesn't know you to to buy from you online, like, because I'd never done that before. It was a challenge. I really questioned myself because I wasn't able to make a sale for, for over a year. And it's not like uh, I wasn't reading business books and, you know, trying to, to do stuff and, and blogging and, you know, building up my web presence and traffic and all these things, but I wasn't able to, to break through. I was 31 at the time, and it's like, man, this is not the right time to, you know, fall on my face. And, of course, all those kind of status and social pressures you build up in your own head, like, what will other people think of me when I tried to do this? And I wasn't able to make anything work. You guys played such a pivotal role in helping me make that first sale and take that first step to you know, becoming relatively more successful on this path. Well, you mentioned um, going to DCBKK in 2012. It is the most memorable conference I've ever been to because here I was trying to you know, sell MBA admissions consulting services at the time, and I wasn't able to. I heard you guys were having the first ever conference. I'm in Saigon. It's a short flight away. Let's go. I'm coming from the corporate world. And here you guys are have. there's like a, maybe I'm going to get this wrong, but like a 21-year-old kid presenting about e-cigarettes, <laughs> selling e-cigarettes in China. Derek Sivers is sitting to my left wearing sandals and taking notes and like nodding. But overall, it's just this feeling of, oh my God, like, There's people doing this, and some of them are making a really great living. 
I mean, I not only learned tactically stuff from that conference, but also just gaining the confidence that I could do this, that I just needed to stick with it, share my lessons and get support from other people going through the same thing. If they hadn't held the space for me, I would have been, you know, back in the corporate world for sure. So you started making sales. How long did it take you to get to a moment where you're like, man, like I I can really like run my own business here and like that can be the thing that I do? So unfortunately, it took me longer than your three years that you often talk about. It took me about four years to get to the point where, you know, I made more money than I had in my, my last job and I was working, you know, a few days a week on the business. And so that was a lot of uh, grinding away and experimenting and trying new things. What were some of the pivotal moments there to get to that? Because that's a pretty special outcome. You really describe in your book what is a quintessential four-hour workweek business. We'll get to it, but you, you seem to have some deep ambivalences about that. You know, like you're working two days a week, you're making a good income, like you have all these amazing hobbies and health and time and things. It's sort of a dream outcome for, for many people just getting off the four-hour workweek mojo, kind of. It is a dream. I was able to live in Colombia for a year, you know, after I reached that point. And I was able to do stuff that we don't even talk about. Like when my dad had emergency heart surgery, I was able to fly home the next day and be with him for three, four months. I mean, that's something that people like us who have that flexibility can do. It's been amazing. I think a lot of it was figuring out the right business model. And that just took a lot of different tries. It took a lot of experimentation. You know, how can I charge business schools? You know, how can I charge MBA applicants? Where I finally stumbled into, you know, through a lot of experiments, like a subscription model for my business, where schools were willing to pay me an annual fee every year, you know, to get in front of all the people that came to our site after listening to the podcast, right? After reading our guides, after getting a lot of great free guidance from us. So essentially the schools, their customers are these candidates and you're cultivating the candidates. So they're paying you a subscription to send them people who are essentially willing to pay this tuition and capable of passing the entrance requirements. Exactly. Because business schools are just like top companies. They want the best. They want the best talent from around the world. They want to build a really dynamic class, not just for the educational experience, but for when those people become alumni and then can really help the school as well. So they're on the talent lookout. Give me a second to talk about today's sponsor, Travis Jamison, smashdigital.com. They're the first people we reach out to whenever we're thinking about improving our rankings or any SEO question, frankly. In fact, Recently, I reached out to the team at Smash Digital with a 301 SEO project, which wasn't a great fit for them. So they referred me to someone who could help. And I know that's why we use them. And so many listeners of this pod use the services over at smashdigital.com. The reality is they really know what they're talking about. They've got skin in the game. They use the exact same methods for their clients that they do to rank their own portfolio of profitable businesses. That's right there. Practitioners. It's really empowering to deal with experts who are just straight up and honest about what they can and can't do for your rankings and your SEO in general, rather than being walked through some cheesy sales process by SEO services built for people who really don't understand the power of SEO or how it applies specifically to their business. So if you want to have Smash Digital in your business's back pocket or just learn more about what they do, 
check them out over at smashdigital.com. We appreciate the team at Smash for sponsoring the show. One of the things that jumps out to me, you know, at a chapter in your book about this is like just that experimentation and all the people around you like ran these random experiments like, oh, this person is super successful in this dimension. This person is super successful here. And then in your own case, like this struggle with the uncertainty of like, I don't know. And like, that's kind of my job. So I'm just keeping like throwing spaghetti against the wall sort of thing. Yeah, I think dealing with the uncertainty and ambiguity is such a an important skill if you're on this path. And it's something I had to learn, right? Because I was used to those ladders to climb, right? Get good grades, get into a good school, you know, win the tournament, and then you get the result. Or, you know, join the corporate world, climb the ladder, get to the next position, get the higher salary. There's clear finishing lines. But for this path, I learned that there's no real clear finishing lines. I mean, you could say money is one of them, right? Like enough money to retire. But We're doing this because we want so much more than that. I've had to figure out what's really important to me and to stick to those guns and to pursue that life, which is not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this is like a conversation. So I want to like frame up, you know, the book conversation this way and see if you agree or disagree. You know, essentially, we're both 40. There's one thing here which is happening, which is, let's say you have an early retirement at 60. That means that me and you have both witnessed 50% of our output. I can feel 20 years and I know what it's going to feel like in the future. And so there's a perspective that comes with that, that I think is part of the theme of the book. The other bit is, you know, you've basically taken Tim Ferriss's template, the live in Columbia, the visit the family for half a year, the two hours a week, you've become a high level salsa dancer. You dance three times a week. You're incredibly physically fit. Uh, you have a great deal of time and location freedom, yet you're sitting here sort of halfway through your career asking like basically the biggest questions in life, in part because you have been so independent that who's there to guide you at this point? You know what I mean? <laughs> like you sort of like sort of come to this shore and looking around and then combine the fact that COVID hit and it had a dramatic impact on your business. So Can you tell us like what happened during COVID specifically to your business? Yeah. So unfortunately, I lost a third of my business school customers. And so I lost a third of my subscriptions. And that was that was a hit to the business. How did it feel? Honestly, it didn't feel that bad. I mean, clearly, like, you know, I I want those customers. I want that revenue. I want to provide them the service. But it wasn't the end of the world for me. I think it's because I'm so used to dealing with the ups and downs that to me, it's just another lesson. All right. How can I serve them better? What do I need to do next? Whereas before this would have like challenged my entire entrepreneurial identity, right? Like definitely I've had those questions and those, you know, late nights, early mornings, like staring at the ceiling, thinking, you know, what the hell am I doing with my life? You know, just because one customer canceled their contract. There's a lot of those moments on this journey. And I think that we should expect those. And so largely what the book is about then is sort of a really honest exploration of what that might look like. I mean, there is this famous chapter in uh, Tim Ferriss's four hour work week that's called filling the void. 
is essentially this idea that you've sort of hacked covering the expenses for the things that you want to do in life, maybe save for retirement. And so the question then becomes, you know, what now? And there's not a lot of great answers that Tim provides for that. I mean, the irony of that chapter is that the whole reward of the four-hour work week is, you know, existential crises, frightening moments of doubt. I mean, Tim experienced this stuff 15 years ago, right? But who the hell reads that chapter of the book? No one. (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) I'll worry about the void later. That's the reward for building the four-hour business. I think he really stumbled onto something important, which is, I don't think the path that I've been on for the past 10 years is natural. Like, I don't think we were meant to work completely alone and to be so, in a way, untethered from the rest of the world. Yes, I created this, you know, independent entity that can largely run without me, but that also means I'm not needed that much. It's not natural. From my experience, maybe some people can hack it, but I feel this slowly withering away. You know, no matter if I'm making good money, I can work wherever I want, right? But if it's just for myself, it's like, what's the point of this all? And it's so funny because even though I had that choice to, you know, live wherever I wanted, I chose to stay in Saigon because I'd built a community here with my great basketball friends, with my salsa community. And I cherish that more than anything. I would rather come back, you know, instead of exploring another country for a month, I'd rather come back after a week to be with my friends. And I realized this, this rootedness in community is so important. It's something that I believe you and Ian have really, you know, you really got it early on. You guys got this. Like, there's a real need, you know, for especially location-independent entrepreneurs to, to find those tribes because it's too hard and unnatural to do without. I think there's a duality. There's a duality to the work-life values we cherish so much, Dan, like being location independent. What do I crave the most? Ingenuity, freedom, adventure, and meaning, to sum it up. And, but there's, there's shadow sides to those values. And what do you mean by a shadow side? You know, if you're going to be a creative person and be you know, ingenuous, there's a lot of failure that comes with that. I mean, it's just part of the package. If you're seeking adventure, instability is the shadow side of that. There's no adventure without instability, right? Same if you're pursuing meaning. Oftentimes, if you're pursuing your own most meaningful life or path, that can often run against what the rest of society you know, expects or wants. So there can be a profound sense of loneliness there. And so if we can expect those things, those shadow sides and deal with them, then we can make the most of this life and, and do our best work as well. My background's in philosophy. Oh, okay. And it doesn't, it's not <laughs> useful very often. But the entire existential movement was based on the quest for meaning in a world that provides none. And in fact, it's like that tension that makes it. That makes it. If you just could find it and identify it and write it down, there would be no quest. And that's sort of the whole idea. And so I do love this concept of shadow sides. And so essentially, like your thesis is, hey, a lot of these things we're flirting with, they have these shadow sides that will leave you potentially isolated. You talk a lot about feeling disassociated from your core family because you know they had different expectations for you to fall in line and, and to like represent you know all the things that they've provided for you, like you would double down on that. 
And so you attempt to lay out a sort of a framework for addressing a lot of these things. And I was wondering if you could help us to run through a few of the exercises that have been useful to you. I think probably the most useful one, you know, in terms of dealing with the uncertainty of the day, that complete freedom to choose your day. And I know I sound so privileged to like complain about that, but you're in the space right now. This is, <laughs> these are very live problems. You're living the question every day. So you need to bring like more resilience, more thought, more energy to every day because you're making all your own choices. And so one framework that has really helped me is simply thinking through your perfect day, imagining it, living it, and scoring it every day. Just this simple, simple tool. And that's how the, the book started, honestly. It was called The Perfect Day. And what I would do is at the end of every day, I would score my day from negative two being a really bad day, horrible day, to two being an amazing, fulfilling, thrilling day. Zero would be neutral. And what you do over time, you score your day, you just record what you did that day and why you scored your day such. And over time, the, the patterns emerge. It's because I saw my best friend. It's because I went to that pickup game, right, that I scored my day at one. I've asked over 50 people about their perfect day because I'm totally obsessed with this concept. And I've learned that most people want really mundane things with their perfect day. Because I was tired of reading like small business and entrepreneurship books. <laughs> like, I was done. <laughs> I was done, Dan. I was like, you know, I got to the mountaintop somewhat. And I'm still feeling this profound sense of loneliness. So screw you guys. No, I mean, I love books. But what I did was I just started asking random people in Vietnam, foreigners, local people, all classes, all genders, all ages, what's your perfect day? What are the patterns that lead to good days versus less good days? So what I found was these four elements reappearing over and over again. The first was a connectedness. So being connected to friends and, and loved ones. The second one was autonomy, having the ability to choose the pace and space of your day. The third was progress, like getting better at something that you really valued or that's important. And the fourth was just a clear state of mind, which is a blanket term for either being in the zone or just not being worried. These four traits kept appearing over and over and over again. It was, it was amazing, actually. So when I kind of feel crappy about my day, I actually think about those four things as well as my own score, right? And activities. It's like, did I connect with loved ones today? Did I do my best to do so? Did I do my best to progress at something that's important to me? Did I do my best to do activities that give me this clear, clear mind? And that's going to change over time. I'm not saying there's one thing. And that's the beauty of this exercise, right? It evolves, and you evolve with it, but it is your perfect day. It's not anyone else's. It's not what society says that should be for you. What are some other exercises in the book? All right, I'm going to list them. Number one is own your dark side. Number two is evolve through play and experimentation. Number three is manage yourself better than a boss. Number four is dealing with instability and failure. Number five is Finding meaning on a pathless path. You sound starting to sound like a French philosopher. And number six, 
<laughs> dealing with loneliness or previous a Chinese philosopher, to be fair. <laughs> the Chinese were like hip to this shit like 4,000 years ago. Oh you my know? gosh. <laughs> they so were. I remember reading in college, like you quoted Lao Tzu in the book, like, and I remember thinking, how come this memo didn't get to all the people in Europe for like thousands of years? The Europeans discovered science and like went off the deep end there for a little while. <laughs> Maybe one practice I can share, Dan, is this idea of outsight, which has been so helpful to me. Basically, the idea of outsight is in times of transition, when you're starting a new company or even starting a new role, you know, working, what's going to serve you best is experimentation and acting and play. It's not going to be your insights about how to do that thing because guess what? You've never done it before. So how would you know what to do? And this is what I wasted 18 precious months of my life, you know, all the way back in 2011, trying to read my way into becoming a better entrepreneur, Dan, when really I just needed to meet people in your community, form new relationships, experiment with new ways of being, and get comfortable with that. So I truly believe, especially when you're stuck, which is, I'm sure, a problem all of us have, it's much better to, to experiment and play. That gets you much further along than hard work. Now, disagree with me, Dan, if you want to, but the biggest breakthroughs in my business and my personal life, they've all come through experimentation, not hard work. Yeah, hard work will land me you know, two extra sales and a little more traffic, but they aren't like the game-changing things that make my life rich and that make my business rich as well. And so I, I really believe this message of like hustle, hustle culture. And like, I mean, it has its place. Don't get me wrong. It has its place, but it's not the key in my opinion. It's hard to be precise with these things. I think you're definitely onto something. I think you're right. The idea that if hard work is defined as like grind head down more of the same but if the magic really comes when you can combine the two if like play and experimentation you can grind that way those are the best people the the best entrepreneurs i've met are people who take a play and experimentation approach and grind it out every day basically and a lot of that is about leaving your ego at the door i think to be able to do that to be able to grind and mess up what is working. I mean, you just try something and observe it for what it is. And I think oftentimes we associate the value of our business with our own self-worth, which is not is easy to do, but it's very unhealthy, actually, right? Because when you do that, not only are you putting twice as much pressure on yourself because you're associating your identity with your business success, but you're also bringing so much ego into your business that you can't see what's really happening right in front of your face. Like no one's responding to your offer. I'm going to make this thing work. Like that, that stubbornness that gives us so much power as entrepreneurs can also really hold us back. And a lot of times I think that's ego. Let's talk one more about um, dealing with instability and failure. Let's talk about money a little bit. You talked about examining your money beliefs. Oh man. <laughs> one of the themes of your book is like, Hey, I took the four hour work week. I did it for 10 years here's where I'm at. It's not all like I might've had a lot more money if I just would have stuck in Singapore and like stuck it out for 10 years. And it feels like you're really honestly wrestling with that. It takes a lot of self-awareness to know what is that number for you. And I definitely have that number and pursue that and not be distracted by, 
you know, everything we see or feel inferior because my peers, which I, I, I do struggle with, but my peers who are making half a million dollars or millions of dollars a year, you know, and I'm very far away from that point. And it's like, man, like what's wrong with me? You know, that's my, my initial reaction, but I really have to tease that, that assumption, you know, what's real about that and what can I take action on and what is just a misplaced identity? Well, a lot of it is about really about benchmarking yes, and deciding like, who are you richer than? Who are you making more than? And if you're not supplying benchmarks, then who is? And other people will inject them into your life and they'll say things like, hey, Darren, if you just would have like lived in New York City and made 200 grand a year, then you'd be richer now. And then you're really rap- grappling with this idea. But but yeah, I'd work six days a week. Yeah. So now I'm working two days a week. And so this idea of benchmarking is complicated because not everybody shares our view on career. I'm not a less worthwhile person because I make less money than someone else, yet I have this script running in my head that that's true. That's completely false, right? But do I need to make enough money for retirement and and to live comfortably? Hell yeah. And that's really important to me. But it's being very clear on what those goals are and pursuing them while also realizing like this isn't the be all end all. There's, like you said, Dan, we're we're 20 years in, like looking back, we got, you know, what, 20, 30 years left to create amazing work and help people. And that's important too. It's not all about like one number. But moving forward for me, it's more like, I don't want to be the solo wolf anymore. I'm looking to team up to be interdependent with my businesses and with my partners, and just be a, a bit more integrated with community and and with people. Yeah, I feel you on that. You know, one of the notes that came through after reading your book is like, is this, you know, the ultimate argument for business partnerships? You know, masterminds, they get you part of the way there. One of the things that was really troubling for COVID for me was like my physical space didn't, this is going to sound very weird for somebody who's a location independent entrepreneur, but my physical space didn't represent my work life enough. And what I mean by that is like, I really wanted to be with the people I was working with more. And so I would get on these like team calls and like we would fantasize about like when we're going to be back together. And yeah, I mean, I think that stuff's huge. Yeah. I mean, I feel so envious that about you and Ian, maybe I don't know the full story, you know, the full picture of your marriage, but <laughs> you know, having a business partner to, to bounce ideas off of and, and build something together would be, yeah, definitely something I've already started to do, you know, with my new business ideas, like just trying to work, work with others and build stuff together for sure. I love how your book like really singles out like the solopreneurs, the freelancers, the, basically the people living this like new economy life. And we've sort of, like you said, we were really some of the first people to really have it look like this. I mean, yeah, there were people that were like had foreign posts and stuff, but to kind of just pull it out of your laptop quite literally and, and sort of rewrite the rules. And I do think that there's going to be a lot of folks joining us. One of the questions is like sort of what would you do differently if if you could like run back the 10 years and be in a little bit of a different spot how would you amend the say Tim Ferriss model for the next gen coming through Well and I don't I don't mean this to plug you guys but I wish I had jumped into a community sooner other people doing the same thing again back to that concept of outset cuz that would have accelerated my learning and my journey 
That corroborates, you know, some of the conclusions you reach in the book, which is essentially practice-based learning. So like, you can't like read or listen to this podcast your way into being a great entrepreneur. You really have to kind of like monkey see, monkey do sometimes, be around people and like change your behavior. And then that leads to positive things. Yeah. This is stuff where you have to probe, sense, and then respond. There's no best practice for this. You have to figure it out. You have to jump in the fire. And the quicker you're able to do that and not take yourself so seriously, meet other people that are doing amazing stuff, learn from them, learn from your own mistakes, learn from your own perfect day, like learn how to manage your great gifts and your great dark sides, which we all have. That's the way to go. And, and I just hope the message gets through loud and clear that, you know, to expect those costs, because that is half the battle. You always have to re- remember that the bigger picture you know, with all this, that it's the media darlings, the, the, the successes are the ones that are going to be featured more, right? You're not alone. Like, expect these things, you know, find a community to help you work through them and get through them, but don't just expect the costs and it's a wonderful life. Monday, Monday, Monday. This Monday morning, ignite your business growth with an absurdly high quality hire from Dynamite Jobs. A hire so explosive to your bottom line, you're bound to be bogged down in cash money. To get started, it's just a zero to 30 minute phone call, rocket fueled by the legendary Ian Close and Showin. Watch him risk his reputation with career killing, high pressure sales tactics. Experience live the let me take that to my finance guy move, the hard sell. And I think I need a chief operating officer. What would change in your business if we could get that done for you today? Classic reversal. Hiring used to be a pain in the ass, but with Dynamite Jobs recruiting, it's scintillating, titillating, profitillating. This Monday, 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 go to dynamitejobs.com and click on the Hire With Us link. Why have you chosen to make Ho Chi Minh City your home? You know, it's the one place that cured my wanderlust. It's still such a great place to explore Southeast Asia. Obviously, it's very affordable. It fit with the business I was starting because I was working with a lot of Vietnamese MBA applicants. But I stayed here because the pace of change here and everything that's going on is thrilling to be a part of. I love traveling throughout the country and I love seeing how things are developing, you know, in the startup scene and so forth. So it's, it's amazing. Darren, it's worth putting down on wax, so to speak. A lot of like people that I respect, you know, they didn't move on from Ho Chi Minh City or Vietnam. They stayed and like made it their home and, and permanent, like five years plus permanent. And so I think it's worth laying out who that might make sense for and like how much it costs and what it might look like for people. The world's starting to open up in the next couple of years. Like people are putting plane flights on their schedules and and when they come through Saigon like what kind of expectations can they have as Saigon for a home base and let's start with cost how much does it cost to live there the costs are still it's incredibly affordable and it can range from $250 to get a basic like studio that's still in the center of the city like literally in district 1 to you know $1000 plus for a really nice you know modern luxury quote unquote serviced apartment you know, where you could have one room for your study, you know, one room for your bedroom and another room to do whatever you want. The food is 
I think some of the tops in the world and some of the most affordable food. So like a bowl of pho still costs you less than, than $2, you know, maybe $1.50. You can live extremely comfortably here for, I would still say like $1,500 a month to $2,000 a month still. What I love about the city, Dan, is there's so much versatility to it. So if you really want to, to save and live low cost, you can. But, you know, if you want to do things that are more luxurious, you can also do that as well. It's not that expensive. Is there a type that Ho Chi Minh City attracts the people that stick around versus the people that move through? Because a lot of people go to Bali or, you know, like, what is the type that Ho Chi Minh specifically speaks to? I don't know if, if these people are the ones who stay here, but I know it attracts makers. And that's why I love it so much. Because this place, it's so youthful. It's full of youthful spirit and like hustle. And the brightest kids here are trying to start their own businesses. They're not trying to work for KPMG. And so there's this entrepreneurial ethos that permeates. And you can still feel it, you know, intensely here. And I love that. And I needed that you know, frankly, to help, you know, keep me in that space, as I mentioned. So I think it attracts foreigners and obviously local people from within Vietnam who are, you know, just let's, let's make something. Let's, let's make this happen. It's very entrepreneurial. Vietnamese people are so warm to foreigners and are so open to the outside right now. And I think that's another reason why it's such a special place for us to live. I'll corroborate a few things that I'm on the record about. The first is I think the uh, average Vietnamese truck driver eats better than the average upper-class American. I love that. Send it. That's true. I think it's true. And I was just thinking about it like my dinner options last night here in Austin, Texas. Like, I'd rather just be a street worker in Vietnam. Like, What I'm going to eat is better food. And that's Austin, Texas. The second thing is the entrepreneurial spirit. Is absolutely incredible. I think you nailed it there. And there's this idea of like what cities whisper. You know, in New York, it whispers, you know, make more money. In Austin, Texas, it, it whispers sort of like be more accepting of what people are up to. And Ho Chi Minh City, it whispers to me, make something of yourself. Like there's this very, this drive of like, go out there and make something. And that can be the downside of the city as well, too. It's a place that you can't help but to see moving and shaking and, and intensity and energy everywhere. It's perpetually under construction. <laughs> and that's you too. That's the city. That's you. And, and a I, for, yeah. For, yeah. <laughs> Big shout out to today's guest. Darren Joe, director of the touchmba.com. His book mentioned in this episode is called The Fail Safe Solopreneur. So check that out. Always interested in your, your thoughts and challenges. And one final thing, we I just pulled together this morning our sponsorship package for DC Mexico. So if you're a DC member or run a company that's relevant to DC members, pop me an email, Dan at tropicalmba.com. We have sponsorships available for our event in Mexico. That's it this week. As always, we'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 